Welcome back to another episode of Creedle and a special thank you to my guest today who's also uh, loaning me the use of his technology. We've had a, what Larry, a 30 minute uh, saga of yeah. trying to troubleshoot this uh, for today. Yeah. So we tried Riverside and that didn't work for who knows why and live webinar is, uh, was stubborn but is now, has now finally uh, bent to the will of Larry Chap uh, and, uh, and it's working. So, Larry, thanks no, the for... The problem is my, my internet here on the farm is sketchy and it doesn't want to deal with Riverside, but it, it handles it, a live webinar much better for some reason. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Hopefully it works. We have, by the way, a 27-minute show today, and I say 27 because Larry's got uh, he's got a radio interview to do uh, that, will, that will give us a hard stop. So, Larry, let's get started. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Let's go. The, we can do a follow-up show yeah, to that sounds great. this. Would love to do that but i will say i've missed our chats uh i always learn a lot from you uh we were doing we were doing really well on a monthly cadence uh, with creedle would love to get you back on that if you're up for it but uh, but but things got really crazy uh your your gaudium at spez blogging uh has taken off you're always writing at the catholic world report and as of recently the national catholic register and doing your own podcast now and all this stuff so we've been very busy but i'm glad to get you back on the show uh how are things in pennsylvania Things are great. Summer is in full swing. The Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm is going great after two years sort of downtime because of COVID. So things are looking up. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Uh, well, I was uh, uh, I was thinking of you the other day because, well, I guess because you shared something that you had written on the National Catholic Register. And this was uh, in, I think it was one of the one of the things that you've read you, you've written recently that I I found most helpful in helping me sort of understand Pope Francis. Um, a lot of our conversations that you and I have had over the past year and a half or so come back to where is the church today and how should we understand the church of today in the context of the church uh, as she um, has as she has been uh, since Christ founded her. Um, and your article about Pope Francis. Uh, was I think really helpful in situating where Pope Francis is in the um, in the uh, sort of development, I guess we could say, of moral theology in perhaps the debates of yeah. moral theology, especially in the twentieth century. And so I thought we could we could d dig a little bit deeper into uh, your contention there, which I think is very plausible. And I have a few comments slash thoughts to maybe add to that. Um, and then also I saw that you had another uh, a recent uh, uh, roundtable uh, article uh, with. Um, John Cavadini and uh, Stephen White, in which you talked about some recent comments from Pope Francis that uh, I have to say did not sound terribly charitable towards um, towards the sort of traditionalist oriented Catholics in the U.S. So we we can maybe talk about that if we have time in this you know twenty five minutes we have yeah. remaining. And by the way, I have another follow up article on Catholic World Report on those comments from the Pope dealing with what he called the restorationists in the American Church. Is that published yet in the Catholic World Report? No, not yet. Should okay. be coming out within the next few days. I Great. just sent it to Carl Olson a few minutes ago. Okay, <clears throat> awesome. Well, I look forward to reading that one. Let's start with the uh, the proportionalism uh, thesis that you have. Yes. Um, the title of this one is uh, Understanding Pope Francis. It's the moral theology stupid. And I'm going to just give like a 60 second, try to do my best, 60 second overview of your argument here. And you can tell me kind of what I've missed and then and, and sure. fill out what I've missed after that. So you start out by saying, you know, it's it's hard to understand Pope Francis. Some people think that he is uh, just, you know, mere continuity from what has gone before. Some people think that he is mere rupture from what has gone before. But both of those narratives really kind of miss the mark. What he is is a um, is a uh, watershed or a tide turning moment in the church's moral theology. 
uh, while he proclaims that he is a son of the church and he does not um, and makes a point to not change any anything in the moral law of the church, what he does endorse or has endorsed um, and is moving the church towards is an, is an embrace of what we might call a proportionalist view of moral theology. Um, and I'm not uh, I'm not super right up on this, but I appreciated your uh, pretty concise overview. And we've talked about it before on the podcast, uh, which endorses what we might call a gradualism of the law rather than simply the law of gradualism. The gradualism of the law, meaning that, yes, the church has these concrete moral teachings that cannot and will not change. But just how far those apply to you and your specific uh, exigent circumstances in a pa- from a pastoral consideration, pastoral uh, standpoint, yeah. um, really depends. And so, uh, yes, we have these hard teachings. Uh, Jesus gives us these hard teachings, but you know what? We can't always live up to those, and that's quite okay. In fact, that's not even what Jesus asks of us. Jesus um, asks us to uh, to try to get to heaven, and he asks the church to try to get people to heaven. Um, and probably, I, I, I certainly am oversimplifying it, and you might have some sort of uh, nuanced ways of, of clarifying that. But in support of your thesis about how Pope Francis is is embracing this proportionalism, uh, you mentioned several things. Uh, one is, you know, his sort of tendency to do things like um, not not change church teaching in Amoris Laetitia, but, you know, footnote what could be a pretty substantial application of church teaching uh, in an ambiguous sort of way, uh, endorse various proportionalists of the, of the church uh, of the 20th century as sort of the leading lights of um of moral theology for pope francis um replace the uh the faculty of the jp2 institute in rome uh get rid of all the veritatis splendor jp2 folks and replace them all with with those who are more of the proportionalist school etc um and so this i think helps me understand pope francis because it is certainly true that uh that that the sort of you know the cardinal marxes of the world have probably been disappointed that pope francis has not um straight up ratified their more radical proposals and desires for the church. And yet at the same time, uh, what we have seen is a lot of winking and nodding, and not necessarily even in a conspiratorial sort of way, but more in the sense that uh, Pope Francis is recognizing or is proclaiming, look, this is the moral law, yes, but whether or not we fully apply that or even able to fully apply that is something that only God himself knows. And so all we can do is is, um, sort of try. Uh, And I think that's... um, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I agree with the Holy Father, but it does help me understand uh, where a lot of his actions come from. So what did I miss in that in that overview, Larry? Well, that's that's pretty exhaustive. And I, I think that was a really quick. It's a shame we have such uh, such little time today, but it's a good overview. I would like to make uh, a very clear uh, statement, though, that maybe doesn't come out quite as clearly as it should in my piece. I'm not claiming that Pope Francis is just an unvarnished, straight up proportionalist in moral theology, but he just doesn't have the honesty to admit it or something, or he's trying to get it in through the back door. I I, I don't think that he is a straight up proportionalist. Um, nevertheless, I think so. In other words, you, the one thing that maybe you got a little wrong, but it's my fault because I wasn't clear was when you say that uh, I say that Pope Francis embraces proportionalism. I think it's better to say that he uses proportionalist moral thinkers. He uses them for his own purposes. And what I think is, is that he has a particular pastoral strategy in mind as to where he wants the church to go. And he wants it, I think, to be very, it's very clear in his statements, very latitudinarian, big tent, here comes everybody. And with everybody on a kind of sliding scale of holiness from the worst to the best, and that all are welcome at the table of the Lord, and we can embrace everybody 
where they are in life, while at the same time sort of kind of challenging them to go higher. Uh, and I think that what he finds is that proportion, priests and, uh, and, and bishops and moral theologians that trend in a proportionalist direction are, are closer to that pastoral strategy that he envisions than old-fashioned natural law moral theologians are. I think he unfairly views those theologians as strict doctrinaire Pharisee. Rigid, yeah. yeah, he uses that language all the time. Strict doctrinaire Pharisees, you know, sticking to their truth. And he often pits truth against mercy, doctrine against praxis, and, and so on. And so if you look at it, like you said, he praises Bernard Herring as a model for theology. Bernard Herring was a proportionalist. He replaces all the professors at the JP2 Institute with proportionalists. He, in, in, in Morris Letizia chapter eight, he says, hey, look, if this is the best you can do, that's God's will for you. Yep. That's not straight up proportionalism, but it skirts it, as I say. Yeah, it so really I, does skirt I, it. I think my Go question ahead. to you, Larry, would be what would, if that's not straight up proportionalism, then what? What is straight up proportionalism? Because it sounds like, I mean, if he's saying that the leading light of moral theology is a proportionalist and he's, he's, um, you know, the, the JP, JP2 Institute, he's, he's filling it all with proportionalists. Yep. He's endorsing what sounds like a proportionalist uh, approach in one of his encyclicals. And what would, it, like, what would be different if he was a straight up proportionalist? Uh, I think what would be different is that we would see perhaps uh, changes in church teaching uh, on an official magisterial level in the moral theological domain. I, I, I think, in other words, that you might have seen in Amoris Laetitia in its dealings with moral theology more of an overt embracing of that moral theory uh, and a correcting of John Paul II's condemnation of it or a nuancing of that condemnation of it. Um, so the fact, in other words, what, what I'll give Pope, in other words, I'm not a Pope Francis hater, like so many rad treads and so on. And I'll, and I'll give him his due here. I think he is a loyal son of the church. Uh, he has not, as you said, given uh, the Germans or any other liberal faction of the church, their most cherished ideals of women, priests, married priests, LGBTQ plus IAA, whatever. He hasn't given them really any of that. Um, changes in contraception and so on. And I think it's because he does not want, he sincerely doesn't want to be contradicting settled church teaching yeah. on these. But I do think, though, that he has a very powerful conviction, one that I think is incorrect, that the church needs to move in the direction of greater, as I said, latitudinarianism, greater openness to the culture in the world. And, and I think we've tried that, done that. I think it's actually a mischaracterization and a misunderstanding pastorally of where the church is, that apparently the problem with the church is that it's too rigid and not open enough to the fluid, fluidity of the modern world. I, I would say, Holy Father, with all due respect, that's crazy. Uh, have you not been in these churches? Yeah. Are, they're not riddled with traditionalists, and hence his recent comments about America being riddled with restorationist traditionalists is simply empirically false. There are quite a few traditionalists here, but they are an extreme minority. The fact is, the biggest problem in the American church, as with European churches, is exactly the opposite. Okay, We have a laity and a clergy that have completely drank deeply from the wellsprings of modern secularity, modern bourgeois liberalism. And that's the challenge we need to face. So rather than a more latitudinarian message where, okay, if your circumstances are X, Y, Z, then the moral rules don't really apply to you with full force. That's proportionalism, yeah, by yeah. the way. Right. All right. 
rather than that, maybe we ought to be throwing out the challenge of the universal call to holiness, really, you know, putting fire in the equations and preaching a powerful evangelical message. One wonders, for example, why is it that the Catholic Church and the Pope's native Latin America, why are we bleeding, hemorrhaging Catholics to Pentecostal and other evangelical Protestant churches? Is, is it possibly because they're preaching a message of a robust evangelical sort of conversion to Christ and, and the churches down there are not? I don't know. Um, but it's certainly, I don't think, something we need to be doubling down on with regard to this more latitudinarian yeah. proportionalist approach. And uh, with all due respect to our Holy Father, and he is the Holy Father, I think he's mistaken here. That makes sense. I agree with uh, almost everything that you're saying. Um I had a an epiphany moment earlier this week. I was speaking with uh, Dominican, and your article came up. Actually, I ended up he had not seen it, but uh, but I ended up sending it to him. Um, and uh, just to, I, I want to be clear, this is this is not a Dominican who's ever appeared on the show. I've had a few on, but I don't want to I don't want to uh, unfairly suggest that this was this was in conversation with them. This was not uh, one of those who's appeared on the show before. Um, but uh, I was talking with him, and he he uh, was talking to me about this sort of proportionalist ideology. And the differences between the Jesuits and the Dominicans in this regard. And he told me a story from seminary uh, when he was in formation in which a Jesuit instructor was talking to him about basically the sort of uh, gradualism of the law approach. And uh, he complained uh, and went to a mentor after this because he was frustrated. This this moment in seminary, he was he really felt like he was being taught untrue things by his his Jesuit uh, instructor. So and ended, ended up talking to a Jesuit mentor of his. And this mentor said, uh, the thing with the Jesuits versus the Dominicans and the way they think about moral theology is that the Jesuits want to fill heaven with sinners and the Dominicans want to fill the earth with saints. And so so the Jesuits embrace the, often, not, not all of them, and I, I don't want to cast too broad a, or paint with too broad a brush, but the Jesuits tend to embrace this latitudinarianism if they err in one, one direction or the other. And the Dominicans um, proclaim that, no, the moral law is the moral law. It is never contrary to charity. And in fact, God always gives us the grace to live and embrace the moral law as he has given it to us. Uh, but I thought I thought that that quip that the Jesuits want to fill the earth with sinners and the Dominicans want to uh, fill the earth with saints um, helped me understand, uh, in a nutshell, a lot of, I think, what the, what the current debates in the church are about. Um, and probably uh, to, to understand Jez, uh, Pope Francis, who himself is obviously a, a Jesuit as well. What do you think of that, though, Larry? I think that's absolutely critical observation uh, about Je Jesuits. I mean, one one of the reasons why I, I don't I'm very hesitant to say that the Pope is just a proportionalist straight up is, is precisely because there are close affinities between what looks like proportionalism and old fashioned Jesuit casuistical moral theological thinking, as well as in Ignatian, and the Pope talks about this a lot, an Ignatian spirituality of moral discernment mm -hmm. um, that, that does try to discern in the midst of various circumstances in life what right. the best moral pathway is forward. So I do think that's why I'm very careful not to say, oh, the Pope's a proportionalist. No, it's more complicated than that. Like I said, I think he's pro pro proportionalist adjacent in some ways, and he's sympathetic to it. But I think it's really this Jesuit background that is driving him. Now, all that said, I want to I make it very clear. 
I actually support the more latitudinarian approach. I am a Catholic worker. I have a big tent view of the church. I too, and you have to have both the Dominican and the Jesuit approaches. You know me, universal call to holiness, dude. Um, and, 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 you know, the need for a strong faith. Nevertheless, I think the latitudinarian approach is far preferable to a, a, a strict kind of, we're a church of saints, uh, a small club, you know, approach. But the difference is this. One can be a latitudinarian in your approach to things because one can always embrace the path of mercy, forgiveness, compassion, and inclusion, even as one, however, maintains the moral teachings of the church, not as ideals, but as commandments, Mm -hmm. uh, as things that God does expect us to do, and that our life circumstances do not exempt us from at least trying to achieve those moral norms. See, that's my criticism of the Pope here. His words sometime imply that if my if I adjudicate through discernment and accompaniment with a priest, that my situation is such that I can't really live up to the moral norm, then that becomes God's will for me at that moment. Therein is the problem. Because therein you've now turned what is a compromised moral situation that maybe a tolerant pastor simply has to deal with gradually, Mm -hmm. you've turned that into a positive blessing. You know, God's will in your life. That means that it's good. It means you're not doing anything wrong. It means you're perfectly content to stay right where you are. And so I'm latitudinarian, but I'm not of the let's be content with where we are school either. I'm not saying the Pope advocates that, but I think his words can be taken down that path. Most definitely. Yes. No, that makes sense. Can we talk about Pope Francis's, since we've got 10 minutes left or so here, can we talk about Pope Francis's recent comments on the American church and yes. how there are significant elements within it who simply flat out reject Vatican II? Uh, he spoke against this you know, so-called yep. restorationism that, um, that in his view at least calls for sort of a restoration of the church that existed prior to Vatican II. And I don't think we need to go too much into sort of dissecting the problems with restorationism. You and I have chatted previously about how today's uh, sort of what we might call the rad trad movement in America often over idealizes the pre-Vatican II period. And we have to be very clear headed about this, that prior to Vatican II, there were plenty of problems in the church. In fact, the most clear example is that most of the priests who committed the horrific sexual abuse of the second half of the 20th century were all trained in the pre-Vatican II era. So, Absolutely. so, so they were yeah. the fruits of the pre-Vatican II church. So it's not as if Prior to Vatican II, everything was was fine and dandy. Rather, it's the case, as as we've said before, that uh, the, the 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 Second Vatican Council was um, not co not necessarily co opted in itself, but uh, the reforms of the Second Vatican Council were co opted seriously um, and uh, and taken to the nth degree in the wrong direction. Uh, and we see a lot of liturgical abuses and theological abuses uh, emanating from that fruit. So. Um, <clears throat> So without going down the rabbit hole of, you know, are the restorationists right or are they not? Uh, I think we can say that they are not right. But I guess the first question is, is the Pope right that there is this significant part of uh, the American Catholic tradition that um, that, you know, embraces this sort of restorationism? And I, maybe that's maybe that's too simple of a question, because I think, as we've said before, he is right. There is some element of that. I guess a better question is, do you think he is overstating or overestimating the size and influence uh, of this group? Yes. And and I think it's a little bit uh, uh, complicated because he's clearly wrong if he thinks that the rad trads and their rejection of Vatican II are this dominant force in the American Catholic Church. That's simply 
or, or, or I would say, or even that uh, that the rejection of Vatican II is a dominant idea within the Ratras. I mean, there there are the, I would say the vast majority of Ratras don't reject Vatican II. They have some problems with it and quibble with wording here and there, but they certainly don't reject it as an ecumenical council. Well, no, not not Vigano style rejection, but there right. there is there is deep deep, and you see it in social media all sure. over the place. Yeah deep animosity towards the council and it's only increasing and and a certain uh jaundiced eye cast towards john paul and benedict not to mention francis but we don't need to go to them and the fact is uh rad trads whatever you want to call them they're out there uh and pope francis is correct to see that they're out there but he is incorrect to single out the united states as this sort of hotbed of of Rad tradism yeah, that, that characterizes the American church. As I said before, the, the main problem in the American church is exactly the opposite, uh, a, 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 a lassitude, a sort of lukewarmness about the faith, and, and rather than a sort of strict uh, rad tradism. Uh, but, so the, but, but I would point out something that a lot of people aren't, which is that even uh, if the Pope is correct that there is a significant number of rad trads in the American church, the fact of the matter is, he created them. He's the reason why they're there. If you, I, I guarantee you, if we did a sociological empirical analysis of most people that now self-identify as traditionalists, you would discover that a mere 10 years ago, these people were all just conservative John Paul II, Pope Benedict-style Catholics. What accounts for this rapid 10-year transformation of formerly JP2 Benedict type Catholic conservative Catholics into radicalized traditionalists. And the answer is Pope Francis. To use the buzzword of today, they've been red pilled by Pope Francis. After years and years and years of adhering to Catholic teaching and, and fighting and struggling against the culture, but believing that Rome had their back and that Rome was the center was holding and the bark of Peter was standing firm. All of a sudden, the Pope comes to the throne of Peter that doesn't seem to have their back. And not only doesn't seem to have their back, seems to scold and criticize their rigid Pharisaism. And then as all these ambiguous statements and then trashes the traditional Latin mass and so on. And, and I think that he is correct to identify that these people exist, but I think he's got a giant blind spot if he doesn't understand that he's the cause of it. He's the radicalization that has pushed these people to that. Now, I don't approve of the move that the traditionalists have made, uh, moving so radically to the right in this, but, but he is the cause of it. And he continues to double down by, in a sense, rubbing the American church's nose in it by snubbing snubbing a more conservative JP2 type bishops like a, a Corte de Leon or a Chaput and people like that. Gomez. Snub, yeah. Gomez, snubbing them in favor of McElroy, Supich, Tobin, Gregory, and, and rubbing their noses in the elevating of these kinds of bishops that are all like a, a, a recrudescence of the attitude of 1972. Uh, and, and so there are many conservative Catholics in the American church that are looking at that and going, why are we fighting these battles anymore yeah. when the center doesn't hold Rome doesn't like us. So basta, we're throwing in the towel to heck with Vatican II, to heck with all the reforms. It's Gary Lagrange and Latin for us, baby. And, and, and we're, we're done with it. We're done. I know that last year you were on, and maybe since then as well, I haven't, I haven't uh, seen you, but um, I know the last year you were on Michael Lofton's reason and theology show, which I highly recommend to my listeners. Oh, yeah. Great show. Uh, I had Michael on. I was on his show last year and I had him on, um, I think, prior to that on my show to talk about 
talk about some of the, some of the things from the Francis pontificate um because he's had a very interesting journey as you know from protestantism to eastern orthodoxy and and uh, into catholicism and then sort of back to eastern orthodoxy and then finally back for good i think into uh, catholicism um really fascinating guy with a great story but we were talking about the authority of rome and one of the things that came up was um i think it was in the context of traditionus traditionus custodis but how um many people like you just described, who had been evangelicals and then said, oh, I need authority. I need to go somewhere safe where the doctrine's not going to change. They flee into yeah. the Catholic Church and then something like traditionus custodis happens and they they think, oh no, maybe we're not as safe as we thought. And then it does sort of red pill them like that. And and um, he and I talked about one person in particular, I think not by name, to we didn't want to uh, to sort of point fingers, but it's a very observable, observ observable phenomenon. You can see people on social media saying, I thought this and now look at what's happening. I can't believe this is happening. Well, what do I, I, think I do it, now? I, I, I think an excellent case study in this is is Taylor Marshall. Mm, yeah, I mean Taylor Marshall ten years ago when he's first starting out with his videos and stuff, whatever it is, was a was a sort of just conservative John Paul II Catholic. Yeah, an expert in Saint Thomas. His shows were excellent. He was supportive of the of the, of the sort of Vatican II and and the hermeneutic of uh, you know that JP two and Benedict applied to Vatican II, but then as soon as Francis becomes Pope, you can see his gradual, yeah. gradual, gradual morphing into a red pilled, radicalized traditionalist, vegano supporter in the whole nine yards, which is a shame. It is a shame. I, I, I kind of like Doctor Marshall. Yeah, He's I read his book, guy. Uh, the Catholic Perspective on Paul. Very good book. Uh, highly recommend yeah. it. Um, yeah. That was but the book Infiltration is not a good. Have book. not read that. I, I didn't even pick that up. <laughs> um, <laughs> No. Uh, well, Larry, uh, you've got two minutes till your uh, your radio interview. So we'll circle back like we always do. Universal well, actually, my radio is interview is at 4.06. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so we so do we have a little a more wiggle room. Yeah, um, a little more wiggle room, but we should wrap up. Great. Uh, let's let's you know wrap up in the way that we normally do, which is talking about the universal call to holiness. Um, you know, this always links links back to uh, to the person in the pew, the person uh, praying their breviary every day, the person uh, on their knees at night saying their prayers um the the church militant that's fighting here on earth it's so easy to get uh wrapped up in the intrigue and the drama of it all it's so easy to um to lose faith in the church that christ founded uh so what advice do you have for uh, someone who uh is listening to this is thinking like man this is like we're in we're in bad shape here uh i don't like this and it scares me well i would say with the exception of your podcast and my, and my uh, blog one of the best things you could do is to stop stop paying so much attention to the loud voices on the internet about all of these debates. Yeah, it's a good point. Be because I think what has happened is that people sometimes think there is a bigger problem in the church. There is. And I think the Pope is part of this problem. In other words, the, the social media amplifies these voices to an extent that they go well beyond what their, what their significance really is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so that would be my first advice. Uh, just ignore all of the electronic chatter that's out there. I know I've had to do that lately, too, for the good of my soul. Um, but also, uh, just attend to the sacraments, attend to your own prayer life, attend to your own parish, attend to your own family, your job. Um, as I tell people, this too shall pass. It is God's church. It is Christ's church. Or was that John the 23rd prayed every night, apparently, according to the story apocryphal or not? God, I've done everything I could. It's your church. Good night. Wow. You know, you know, and, and, and I think that's the attitude we need to adopt as we, as we pursue holiness in our own lives, softly, softly, and compassion and mercy towards those around us. 
um, charity goes a long way, you know. I don't know if this is the case for uh, for a Catholic worker. Do, do Catholic workers pray morning and evening prayer? Is there any sort of um, promise to do that on a daily basis? No, there? there's no, there's no promises that Catholic workers make to anything okay. other than a sort of vague adherence to the ethos, to, to the ethos of, of the movement, Got it. Uh, which is both its strength and its weakness. Sure. Uh, but my wife and I are Benedictine oblates as well as Catholic workers. So we do pray the Liturgy of the Hours. And I, I highly recommend people read Liturgy of the Hours. Go to apps like Hallow uh, that you now work for or Bishop Barron's new Liturgy of the Word, uh, Word on Fire, I should say, uh, that comes that you can order. Liturgy of the Word is great. It's a great way to just sort of tune out the cl the clutter and attend to the voice of God. Yeah, the um, uh, my wife and I have uh, been for some time now praying morning and evening prayer together, and it's just it's well, we we do morning prayer together, and then we do evening prayer with the whole family, and it's it's a uh, it's amazing. It's um, I think it's yeah. I think it's life changing just to be able to do that. It's a great, you know, in secular in secular circles, we talk about centering prayer. Uh, and the and the uh, normally what that means is you center you center prayer on yourself and your own identity. But in the church, centering prayer means you center on Jesus Christ, and it's a wonderful way to start your day and end your day by just centering on Jesus Christ. And uh, and we've been using the Word on Fire, the new Liturgy of the Hours from Word on Fire, uh, which is a great little resource, and it makes it super easy. Um, uh, so we have we have, we have one month of that. We also, I mean, we have we have the whole breviary uh, as well that yes, we we normally use, but we're using we're, for one month. We're trying out the the World on Fire one. It's a great resource. Highly recommend. So, I think that's a that's a good recommendation, Larry. Pray more. All right, we should uh, sign off. Sounds great. Gotta run. Thanks so much for joining me, Larry. Thanks for having me on, and we'll do a follow up. Sounds good to my listeners. Uh, if you have any questions for me or Larry, shoot me a note. Zach at CredoPodcast.com. Look for the follow up with Larry soon. Uh, and to all of you out there, God bless you. Mm -hmm.